Hey, it's Ollie here. Um, sorry, it's been a little break since the last season. Um, there has been all sorts of exciting things going on at Gutology. Uh, probably the most exciting thing uh, is we've just uh, brought on a full-time content creator. And basically what that means is, is that if you love the podcast, if you are just really keen to expand your knowledge around gut health, functional medicine, the microbiome, uh, it means we're going to be able to make more episodes and we're going to be able to bring them to life in more detail. So if you're not following us on YouTube or Instagram or places like that, um, then go and do so because you're going to get exclusive access to uh, content. We're obviously bringing our guests to life in more video form as well. Uh, and just tell these stories in new and kind of innovative ways. Uh, and it also means we're going to be able to bring you more podcasts. We've got some incredible guests lined up this summer. Today, we're talking to Dr. Christopher Stewart. I'm going to get into his credentials in the episode. Um, but I flew back from Amsterdam early yesterday morning, uh, prepped this podcast on the plane, jumped straight into the studio. And really, I, in hindsight, I, it, I just didn't need to do much work. Chris um, does such a phenomenal job of translating quite complex things into simple to understand kind of ideas and concepts uh, and tips in some way, I guess, um, for Luddites like you and me. Uh, well, me, certainly. Um, if you are interested in uh, the infant microbiome in season one of the podcast, Julia and I spoke a lot about how it kind of sets in place earlier in life. And he kind of brings that into a lot more detail, which is fascinating. So uh, what is the impact on the infant's microbiome in the first year? Caesarean, the difference between that and normal births. Um, what research is going into preventative medicine? What can we understand about that? breastfeeding exposure to dirt and germs oh there is so there is so many interesting things in this one hour episode so i'm gonna shut up and without further ado let's get into it with dr chris stewart so when we think about the microbiome perhaps we think about food digestion energy it's becoming more widely recognized in some ways now that the microbiome is connected more to our health more perhaps than we realized initially much of the foundation of that we're starting to understand is created in the first year of our lives but how is that microbiome created? Why is the first year of our life so important and so critically important to the microbiome? And that's why today we're talking to Dr. Christopher Stewart, really pioneering some of this research into the infant microbiome. He heads up the Stewart Lab at the University of New uh, Newcastle, and they're facilitating really groundbreaking work into predicting disease much earlier in life and perhaps in the future, even begin to sort of do the building blocks of even preventing it. So, um, Chris, thanks so much for, for, for taking time out of what is probably a really busy schedule at the moment for you. I thought actually it'd be really, really nice to kind of just just start with 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 the basics about you know, when we think about the microbiome at the beginning of our lives, where, how is that, where does that begin? How does it sort of start? That's probably an interesting place to kind of kick off. Yeah, let's start at the start. That sounds good. So, so the microbiome, as you mentioned, is critically important during that first year of life. And the vast majority of evidence points towards the microbiome really being seeded at birth. 
So the initial colonization coming from the moment the baby starts to be delivered, be it vaginal or cesarean delivered, that represents the, the first encounter of that infant and individual with the bacterial and microbial world, at least viable bacteria. We can talk a little bit perhaps about potential translocation of metabolites and things through the placenta, but in essence, the first viable contact of that infant with the microbiome comes from birth. There's a lot of research at the moment, uh, and I actually think probably a little bit of fear as well with people that are, you know, when you talk about there about when a baby is born, a lot of the microbiome, when the baby kind of goes down the canal, it, you know, it starts to get coated. Um, is it as simple as if you have a cesarean, the microbiome is going to be heavily impacted in a, in a negative way? Or does it come from more places than just being coated on the skin when the baby comes out through a traditional kind of birth? It's a really good point and it's still quite a contentious point. And you're totally right that I think there's an assumption here that the microbes you kind of miss from the vaginal tract when you're born by cesarean section can play important roles in, in that infant's risk of developing things like allergies and asthmas later in life. But it's, it's very hard to say these are bad microbes or unbeneficial microbes that colonize the infant. Surely, uh, certainly they're different very early on, maybe over the first days, potentially weeks of life. Um, and we have published a paper showing up to one year of life. There's a particular group of bacteria which are different in infants born by cesarean um, compared to vaginal delivery. But again, it's I really like to avoid the sort of notion that these babies born by cesarean are, are um, in any way sort of uh, lacking a certain beneficial bacteria or whatever, because in the vast majority of cases, when it comes to cesarean section, there's a medical indication for that procedure. And I think we just have to be sort of sensitive to that point. Yeah. I don't want to hear like worry mothers who've had to deliver by cesarean thinking, oh, my kid's guaranteed to get asthma. It's it's certainly not the case. There's... Um, there's potentially a slightly different microbiome development, but um, we're a long way away from knowing as to whether that plays direct roles in that infant's short and long-term health. Yeah, because I think there's been some kind of uh, uh, stories floating around of, of, of people that are kind of clued up on the microbiome rushing into the delivery theatre and trying to cover their baby in fluids. To but, but essentially what you're saying is is like there could be some basis to this, but it's really kind of way too early to understand it's, it's certainly not explicit that if you are having a cesarean that your child is going to be heavily impacted negatively. Exactly. These are all risk factors spread across thousands, tens of thousands of babies. And um, ultimately, there's no direct evidence linking that to the microbiome per se. So there's other, obviously, um, events occurring around cesarean section, potentially increased use of maternal antibiotics, these sorts of things that could equally be impacting it. And there's a lot of confounders there, which I still feel need to be unpicked before we can truly say that the cesarean microbiome is, is sort of bona fide bad and the vaginal yeah. microbiome is, is certainly good. And just to unpick that a little bit further, the, there's really only one bacteria that's different between cesarean and vaginal delivered infants and that's really only over the first year of life although some others might argue it's a bit longer but in in the studies i've been involved in it's, it's very typically just that one year period where this one group of microbes they're called bacteroides they're typically um found in, in relatively high levels in vaginally delivered infants and in many cases in cesarean babies we don't see that particular group of bacteria and i think 
when you talked about there this this sort of uh, new wave of of uh, people getting on this bandwagon around vaginal seeding and rushing in and swabbing their baby with their vaginal fluids if they've been born by cesarean in the hope they transfer that beneficial microbiome from their vaginal tract. It's worth noting that this bacteroides, this one bacteria that differentiates cesarean and vaginal delivered infants, actually comes from the maternal gut, not the vaginal and microbiome. So it's more likely that that bacteria is transmitted uh, during fecal seeding from the stool of the mother during that delivery rather than the vaginal tract itself. Um, so that has led researchers down the path of, well, should we start to seed infants with the fecal microbiome of the mother rather than the vaginal microbiome of the mother? And I certainly feel that holds more merit in the sense that if you're trying to restore this one bacteria that's lost, you've got more chance of doing that with the feces rather than the the vaginal tract, but I'm sure you can appreciate just how uh, potentially dangerous this is to add a, a microbiome from a, from the mother to an infant who who um, is, is typically going to be far less diverse, and and all these procedures um, are not absent of risk. So there has to be a really strong indication, I think, as to why we want to go down that path of fecal microbiome transplants. Yeah, and I, I'm assuming as well, like some of the some of the people I've spoken to who are kind of deep in the the FMT kind of world is, uh, you know, if you look at more developed case studies of this now, like in the NHS, where they're using it for C. diff, for example, um, that is not as simple as just taking a stool and in and, and injecting that into somebody's kind of colon that is going through a process that screens the stool that um so i guess that if this ever did come into light it wouldn't be as it might not be something that's done on the first day it potentially could be but that's really interesting right that if if down the line that is proven to be a thing that there potentially could either be a sp- sp- particular strain that could be given to a child a certain period after they've been born via cesarean um yeah absolutely i mean that's that that is the direction of travel but again i think i think first of all we need to prove the this lack of this bacteria in the cesarean delivered infants is impacting their their risk of later life diseases and it's not to say it's absent in all cesarean cases so around 20 percent of babies born by cesarean section will still get this bacteroides colonization we don't necessarily know where it's coming from in those cases and we also don't know if those babies are at the same increased risk of some of those later life diseases we mentioned as the babies that do have or don't have this bacteroides and so there's a lot more work needs to be done and i think um yeah can be done frankly in the years to come um, to unpick that a bit further so child is born cesarean or things is that the the is that it the microbiome is like done and dusted at that point and it's all formed like where where is where is the child at in that kind of process yeah so you mentioned at the start just how important that first year of life is and and of course that for the microbiome is the most dynamic period of development it's literally taking a, a sterile baby at delivery and seeding it with what we call sort of pioneering species um they are typically what we call facultative bacteria, facultative anaerobes. This means they can survive and grow well in both oxygen and non-oxygen conditions. So when the baby is first born, their gut will contain oxygen. But over those initial weeks of life, the, the gut, the lumen where these bacteria thrive will become increasingly anaerobic or oxygen depleted. And this really gives way to a new wave of different bacteria that would not survive in that oxygenated environment. And we start to see bacteria like Bifidobacterium, Phinellas, Blautias, and these other types of bacteria which 
would die in the presence of oxygen or certainly not grow in the presence of oxygen. And so it's much like if you think of a sort of forest fire where you have totally wipe out these huge landscapes. That's the infant gut at the point of delivery. And then you have those kind of pioneering flower species which come through. Then maybe uh, the larger plants start to grow from that because these pioneering species start to provide the nutrients to the soil that the, the other species of plants need to grow. And those pioneering species... You're saying that though that that is inside the microbiome at that's there at that point at birth, whether cesarean or or, or standard birth. Absolutely, yeah. And so, a good example of of a pioneering bacteria in that sense is the Staphylococcus, and this is a skin organism, and it is reported to be slightly higher levels in cesarean infants compared to vaginal, probably because of the skin exposure during the cesarean section itself, but it's not absent from vaginal infants. And so these, this particular group of bacteria really dominates that first month of life, but you can see a rapid drop-off effectively as the gut becomes more anaerobic because there's other bacteria which have better fitness to survive once that ecosystem starts to change, once the oxygen uh, gradient changes, the pH changes, the diet of the infant changes, that really all lends to ecosystem change. And then the bacteria which start to thrive uh, will, will start to take hold, much like after a sort of forest fire. And you have the, the pioneering species often don't last beyond the first year or so. And you see the other species starting to come through. And then moving on from there, how significant to the development of the microbiome in that child is breast milk from that point on? Yeah, so... So it's a really good question, and this is really where my research is focused because breast milk is the number one factor which shapes the infant gut microbiome, certainly after the first few days of life. We um, know that happens up until the baby stops receiving breast milk, so whether exclusive or um, is receiving a sort of mix of of breast milk and perhaps formula or, or potentially solid foods, you still see the impacts of breast milk. But once an infant no longer receives breast milk in their diet, they have a really rapid turnover in their microbiome where the species which love to grow on all the nutrients and sugars that the breast milk provide can quite quickly be lost. And then all the species that love the sort of plant sugars and the uh, glycans provided by other aspects of a typical solid food diet, they start to really take hold. And so the diet dictates to a large extent what microbes will live in our intestines. And that's certainly no more so true than during that weaning period. Um, And really from that point onwards, I would say that's the bit where we we get a bit more stability. um, And we start to have a microbiome that resembles what our own microbiomes will look like through our teenage years into our adult years. Is it, you know, is it possible to kind of sort of broadly sort of say like, okay breast milk is really critical what is like the absolute minimum like you know if we're going to say like there are so many reasons why some children can't be breastfed over a long period of time are we starting to understand that look if you can just get a week or if you can just get the first feed or like what what is that looking like we're a little bit away from being able to put a, a particular time frame on it. Um, I am working with a group of collaborators in Switzerland to to address this, particularly in low and middle income settings. So the the WHO guidelines around sort of twelve month of exclusive breastfeeding where possible. Hi, Ollie here. Just want to quickly interject. Um, 
When talking about um, the WHO guidelines here, uh, Chris said it was uh, 12 months of exclusive breastfeeding. He updated me shortly after this episode to say, actually, the WHO guidelines state six months of exclusive breastfeeding with continued feeding beyond 12 months. So if he references that uh, a couple of times, um, that's the exact uh, guidelines. Of course, you can find those uh, online as well. Back to the episode. Look at the microbiome alongside a whole range of other aspects. Um, and and really begin to give a bit more of an evidence basis for this time period. I think in the absence of that evidence, the the message is really breast is best. Breast milk is is a really important nutrient source for the babies and when mothers are able to. It's fantastic that they do breastfeed. But again, much like I mentioned earlier with this concept of cesarean section and and mothers being quite worried, as you mentioned quite rightly, there's many reasons why a, a mother can't or won't breastfeed their child and again we we have to be very careful not to sort of shame these individuals there's very valid reasons as to why they will they can't or, or won't breastfeed so um again it's not the absolute beyond end all if your child is not being breastfed there's when you include tens of thousands of babies increased risks of certain diseases but um but it doesn't guarantee your child is going to be unhealthy or anything like this and and you know w- where you know as far as like substitute milks at the moment so um uh, baby formulas for example um how far along are formulas in being able to um contribute in some way to the understanding that we have about this point whether that be nurturing good bacteria prebiotic elements stuff like that where where do you see that it is right now yeah it's a good question compared to breast milk a million miles away i mean breast milk is such a complex and tailored biofluid that that mother produces specifically for their infant and so nothing will ever come close to that and the other, so, so of course, formula milk companies are always trying to improve their products. They're using the science, particularly what we understand to be beneficial from human milk to see if they can start to synthesize some of these components and add them to milk, for instance, the, the prebiotics you mentioned. Um, in doing so, they might claim they're taking their product closer to breast milk, but I'm always really hesitant to use claims like this. I think um, historically and even to the present day, the formula milk company has got a lot of challenges around their marketing there's there's a huge amount of money spent on marketing and and these products are incredibly expensive often for parents to buy um so yeah it's not to say um of course formula milk is useless it's absolutely critical it's saved many many lives over the the course of time but um but we do need to be careful when you see on the label of a formula uh, product this this is now closer to human breast milk well what they've probably added is one component we know is in human breast milk but it doesn't really take it any closer to human breast milk and do you you know if we if we were to sort of fast forward 30 years from now um let's say hypothetically there is a solution that is much much closer to to how realistic do you think that 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 is based on our understanding of of, of the components of breast milk right now yeah so 30 long 30 years is is a long time for each of us but it's a very short time period in in science scientific endeavors so so i think there are some groups 
working extremely hard on this. Megan Lazard is, is one group from Canada who's a fantastic scientist and has worked incredibly hard on this area as well to try and really characterize what is in breast milk. As I mentioned, there's thousands of bioactive components and we have a really poor handle, relatively speaking, on what those are, what they do, how they impact the microbiome, the baby's immune system, and ultimately the baby's short and long-term health. And so we're working on it, but... Um, I suspect we'll, in 30 years, still be nowhere near having a, a substitute for a mother's own breast milk because, like I said, that, that tailored product is really never going to be beaten. Like, nature and evolution can't, knows what's best for, the, for the, its own infant, and it's going to be very hard to um, override evolution in that regard. Do you think that it's more likely and these are probably like we're talking such hypotheticals but i think it's kind of interesting to kind of think do you think that it would be more likely that say 30 years from now rather than the development of breast milk genuinely being able to clone um uh, uh being able to clone what what is in the organic matter in breast milk do you think it's more likely that actually uh uh, a child, let's say, that is born cesarean was unable to be uh, uh, breastfed. And, and that child, let's say, hypothetically is predisposed to a higher risk of certain conditions. Do you think that it's more likely rather than just being able to replace the breast milk that there may either be um, uh, the chance of a fecal transplant or a pill that is a derivative of uh, certain strains of bacteria that comes from a in inverted commas, healthy donor. Do you think that that is more likely um, than being able to replicate milk early on in in life? I think um, it's more likely, but I think it would be better to try and replicate milk in the cases where a mother is unable to breastfeed. And there's, so I mentioned about there's groups, including ours, but others around the world, really trying to characterize human breast milk. And there's other groups doing some fantastic work on mammary organoids. So these are effectively small lab-growing grown cells that can produce milk or a milk-like substance. It's a long way away from being human milk, but you can effectively grow these sort of mini breasts in the lab produce the milk um, and again there's work around this where if we could potentially harvest these fluids and we went again a long way away but we're speaking hypothetically 100 years in the future sort of t- talk it may well be that we can get these lab grown organoids to produce something that's much closer to a mother's own breast milk for that infant um, but just so, I think it is important sorry go on <laughs> oh, I'm just saying there like to, to help people sort of get their heads around that would that be sort of similar in a way than um, let's use the analogy of somebody with a sore knee having a steroid injection versus having stem cells injected into their kind of knee? What you're saying there is, is that actually the the milk could be uh, organically produced rather than from a manufactured powder. Exactly. And if it was possible to to take these cells from a mother, these stem cells, you could, in theory, grow maybe some more personalized milk product for that specific infant from the mother's cells. Um, Again, though, this is very much in the realm of of science fiction. And if you were to ask me right now, and indeed, this is a question I get asked reasonable uh, reasonably often is, is like if I had two million or five million quid or whatever to do 
some science or, or to like improve this area of research, what would I do? And I think honestly, that money would be best spent on more lactation consultants and having more people working in hospitals right now with patients, with mothers, really giving them the tools and education or whatever that they need to be able to to breastfeed um because you're right there's it's it's not easy and there's many reasons uh that make it challenging for mothers returning to work etc but if we know with lactation consultants in post we can increase breastfeeding rates uh, across the population and so that's for me like a much easier win potentially right now than spending tens hundreds of million pounds on trying to grow these cells or improve formula or whatever it is and 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 using that example right of say um this isn't a medical decision for a mother it's a lifestyle choice um and of course that's more complex than just a simple lifestyle choice right it's becoming more and more common for uh mothers to have to work in the in in the in the economy that we live in now um it's more and more expensive to to kind of have children um there is uh, perhaps a lot of focus put on um uh, well, I feed my kids organic food and they have a balanced diet and things like this. Would you place longer term breastfeeding higher than the food that you were feeding your child, for example? It depends on how we're talking longer time frame, but certainly in the UK and other developed nations around the world, we are really bad at prolonged breastfeeding. Um, in the UK, we're tend to be quite shockingly bad at breastfeeding to anywhere near the 12-month period that the WHO recommends, the World Health Organization. So um, over that time period, I think for sure, I think the focus on breastfeeding would be fantastic. Beyond that 12-month period, maybe at that point when you're transitioning the infants, thinking about avoiding processed foods especially um, would potentially be more important, but that's purely speculative. Um, it- is there an idea right now about what an ideal length of like is there advice on this like what an ideal length of 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 breastfeeding is for a child yeah so we again based on who guidelines really it's it's 12 months um but again something that we're working on and others are really trying to is that really the best time period is that really long enough um and provide more evidence basis for that sort of recommendation but but very rarely like i say we're even getting close to this 12 month period and so i think um i think that's it that would be important to spend i'm assuming it's i'm assuming it's a it's a bell curve right there's got to be a sort of tipping point at the at the other end you know where you're sat on a park bench with your eight-year-old you know what's the you know what is that sort of is there a point where it becomes like redundant you know like it's not actually adding yeah, more hesitate. benefit no I, I, I get I follow where you're coming from I would definitely hesitate to say redundant I think at that point exclusive breastfeed like the infant or child at that point might need far more calories and energy etc than breast milk alone will ever be able to provide so of course they're going to need other sources of their diet but that's not to say that mother should not be breastfeeding an infant at that point um, so they're at least getting partial breast uh, milk into their diet but up until what up until what age are we are we talking here so there's adults bodybuilders accessing um, donor human milk banks to get breast milk because of the protein rich uh, nature of the substance so like even into adulthood there's benefits of being or receiving all the components of breast milk now i would strongly discourage anybody from depleting breast milk banks in order to like have physical gains <laughs> when babies yeah. literally need their stuff to survive 
but that happens and there's a, there's work, a lot of work around synthesizing some of the components of human milk particularly human milk oligosaccharides which we know are really important prebiotics that feed good members of the back, uh, microbiome and and maybe can we just provide hmos human milk oligosaccharides to adults who have things like inflammatory bowel disease to push their microbiome to a, a sort of more beneficial microbiome and, and in turn maybe reduce the inflammation at the site of their um, uh, disease there's lots of um thought at the moment and and more and more uh, uh, evidence coming out about the sort of correlation between that first year of life, the development of the microbiome, and then the propensity for, uh, you know, uh, things like uh, more inflammatory conditions, atopic, asthma, even moving more into more chronic conditions, irritable bowel disease and things like this. What, what do we understand at this point about... Um, the propensity for for, 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 for for conditions further down the, the line within the context of what happens in that first year of the child's microbiome. Yeah, and I do regard that first year of life as the critical period. Like I said earlier, like this is the time at which the microbiome is developing at its most, but it's also the period at which the human immune system is developing and the gut contains the largest density of immune cells and also largest density of bacterial cells. So like the epicenter of all of this interaction occurring in our guts over that first year of life really can set that infant up for long-term or slightly improved long-term well-being potentially depending on what they're colonized with over that time. So again, a lot of this evidence is circumstantial, or by that I mean not directly studied. You might have an epidemiological study which looks at a million kids and says, okay, infants who were living on farms had less risk of asthma, or infants who were hospitalized more over their first year of life have an increased risk of obesity or whatever. And then that's kind of correlated or hypothesized to be linked to then an imbalance in the microbiome. We know people living in urban versus rural settings will have different microbial exposure over that first year of life. Of course, infants spend a lot of time in hospital, receiving more antibiotics, getting more colonization by those hospital acquired microbes they will have a different microbiome but what what we fail to do yet on scale or what we call in scientific community with enough power to be really um conclusive in the in the conclusions we make is perform a study where we and this will happen it's just the microbiome field is still new but performance studies where we follow individuals through the course of their infancy childhood and adulthood recording a whole range of pertinent information about that individual beyond just what bacteria was in their gut, but what they were eating, what their diet was, whether they had any illnesses, all these sorts of things being recorded. And that will then allow us to start to unpick some of these things. Can we look back at a kid when it was six month old and, and now it's 21 year old? Can we say we can predict that individual's risk of having asthmas, allergies, obesities, whatever it is at the age of 21 based on their microbiome at six months? We will get there. I have no doubt about that. Again, studies like the child cohort, uh, which Megan Azad is heavily involved in, I mentioned earlier, the Teddy cohort, which I've been involved in, these really powerful infant cohorts where we were focused maybe on the first three years or five years of life, but now those individuals are 20 years old or getting towards their late teens, and we can go back to their early samples and start to ask exactly these types of questions on a scale of 12,000 plus samples so we can actually do it with enough power to conclude. I spoke with um, Dr. Jack Gilbert 
um, who's out in Chicago doing a lot of work around mood and the microbiome. And, and, and he was talking to me about um, uh, a study that had been done in Amish communities. Um, I'm sure you're aware of this and, and I come across it, but, but to kind of briefly just recap on it. Uh, the idea that they they notice the much lower rates of asthma in Amish communities compared to to standard American sort of society, and the more they kind of dug into that, they 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 found a uh, they noticed that actually uh, the amount of dust that was in more rural Amish communities and the child's exposure to that uh, uh, dust early on um, uh, correlated, uh, you know, and they, they managed to kind of extrapolate that into how it triggered immune cells and lowered uh, responses to that. Um, and I'm interested to know from your kind of perspective, Chris, because this kind of gets onto the, you know, we've, we, we, it gets onto this idea of, uh, uh, dirt is, is, is good, there has been so much. I mean, even before COVID, right? This idea of like how you know uh, how many TV adverts uh, kills ninety nine percent of 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 bacteria, um, uh, and and this idea of cleanliness being a, a, a net positive for people. Well, certainly that study is one of the studies that's starting to highlight. Well, hey, hold on a minute. Like how important you know it is. Um, and of course, I'm sure it's it's not as simple as you know making sure your kid licks every lamppost they uh, walk past. But you know what is what is your your take on a, a child's exposure to? Um, I don't know if dirt's the the right word, but you know for, for for parents that are listening, you know, should they be wiping their kids' hands? You know, every second of the day. Well, they certainly shouldn't be having them, as you say, lick every lamppost that they walk past. I think that's fair <laughs> to say. But you're all right. There's definitely a balance to be struck here. And in the Western world, we are probably too sanitary. We are too germophobic, if you like. Every product we use, we want to kill the bacteria. We bleach the surfaces. We're using wipes, which, to your point, 99.9% of bacteria or whatever. And, and that is heavily linked, again, through circumstantial evidence where we're linking epidemiological studies with what we think we know about the microbiome to some of the risk of the disease later in life. So um, we don't see IBD anywhere near like we see in the UK and other westernized worlds in lower income settings where they're less sort of germophobic or cleaning the surfaces and everything else um, so frequently. So this was coined over 20 years ago now it was called the hygiene hypothesis and again 20 years later still remains slightly controversial but the point was that we are just too clean and whilst we've done a fantastic job in the western world of reducing infectious diseases because of this super hyper sanitary cleaning the flip side of that is the the rate of autoimmune diseases is increasing at a similar rate to the decline in these infectious diseases. And so sort of take with one hand and give with the other. And again, it's circumstantial. We haven't linked that directly to the microbiome, but there is certainly evidence and groups working on this out there currently to, to yeah, mechanistically explore is, is, this, is this need to feel like everything has to be sanitized and to the nth degree actually causing potentially harm for the infants in their, in their longer term. And does this and and does that become a perpetual flywheel? So, for example, let's say um, uh, 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 let's take a, a mother in the 1980s that suddenly became uh, more health conscious, uh, started cleaning her, her hands more, less hygienic, um, was born into that. 
Um, and then when she goes to have a child, I'm assuming that that microbiome isn't reset. I'm assuming that 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 uh, whatever you want to call it, slightly more uh, sterile microbiome is then inherited. But I guess what I'm trying to understand is, is it like a flywheel effect where each generation it gets compounded because the microbiome doesn't just reset, it's sort of handed down? It's There's certainly elements of horizontal transfer, so this handing down from mother or parent to, to infants. Um, but, so, so yeah, you're right, if a mother's lacking a certain bacteria, of course, then, then that child is less likely to be exposed to it. If the m- mother has less diversity in their own fecal or gut microbiome and at birth that child... Uh, swallow some of that fecal matter then yeah that child is going to be uh, exposed to less diversity and and ultimately that's what this this push for higher sanitary conditions is doing is depleting members of the microbiome which have been colonizing human intestines for hundreds of thousands of years at least uh, humans in some form and evolution knows best so maybe those bacteria should be there and um Diversity is something that people can emphasize a lot in microbiome studies and diversity basically meaning it doesn't matter who's there, but rather how many different members are there. So um, we're definitely reducing diversity with the procedures we've talked about earlier Um, and higher diversity is often linked to health. But again, there's probably a Goldilocks zone in there that has not been characterized where too much diversity is also potentially going to be a bad thing as well. And, and it really does come down to also who is there. Diversity is one element and one way of looking at this type of information, but in the absence of, okay, which actual microbes are making that diversity and what do we know about their functions, then diversity alone, I think, is, um, can be quite a misleading metric. Could you, and I, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if this is getting like a bit out there, but could you... You know, for example, now it's like quite normalized, like, um, you know, uh, we could put a blanket rule in place for folic acid, right, for for, for, for mothers, whatever. Could, could you see um, us getting to a point where um, if the technology was there and it was in place, let's just say this magic FMT pill, which is like got like, let's just say it's like the source code. Right. Here's what we know for a healthy child that is not predisposed to inflammatory, obesity, mood, you know, whatever. And this isn't DNA, right? This is bacterial kind of makeup. Could you see us getting to a point where, you know, it's standard practice on the maternity ward that um, uh, after the baby's born, they go on a short course of um, these FMT um, pills um, uh, because think about I, I kind of and again I know I'm getting a bit but I kind of think about like when you when you think about what imagine if across the board you could reset the microbiome what would the net impact just let's use the example of the NHS mm-hmm. what would that what would the, I mean that would be it would be it would change the entire toll on the NHS something like that could you could you ever see it getting to that sort of point 
So it is like the NHS is a fantastic example because it's a it's a public uh, a fantastic health service, but it's it's all publicly funded. It's um, uh, something that we in the UK should should be very proud of. And and as a result of this, though, cheaper therapies are always going to be uh, prioritised and, and would be a fantastic addition to the arsenal of drugs available through the NHS. So it's worth noting, like microbial biotherapeutics are often cheaper than many other drugs on the market so if something like that was to become available and the NHS was able to adapt it and it reduced asthma, obesity, hospitalizations like you can imagine they would save billions every year as a result of admissions to hospital so I'd love to I feel like I'm being quite negative because you're getting all excited about like the potential for the microbiome and I'm just like pegging you back down but I love it like stay excited because <laughs> this this field will surprise me I am sure um in the years to come but the issue with the microbiome is it's so personal to us that a concept of a FMT that was widespread used across every child born in the UK, um, in some babies I'm sure it might have beneficial uh, properties for that individual, but for others it might do absolutely nothing. For the vast majority of babies and infants I'm sure it would do absolutely nothing. And then for a few it might actually cause harm and then you're left wondering actually is the is the risk worth the reward here? Like, yeah, we might slightly improve the health of 100 babies out of 1,000, but if we cause serious infection in two out of 1,000, is it worth yeah. it? And this is the challenge that clinicians have all the time. I think preterm infants are a fantastic um, case study, if you like, for the use of live bacteria. So we in Newcastle have used what we call probiotics. We deliberately give our most premature infants live bacteria in the neonatal intensive care unit and we have done this now for the last decade um, by preterm infant just to be clear i mean any infant born typically between 23 weeks of gestation and 32 weeks of gestation so they're really immature they're often hospitalized for the first weeks and months of their life they're hospitalized in incubators largely thought to be sterile incubators um, and we know because they're in the hospital environment, because they're premature and because they get more antibiotics, their microbiome is massively perturbed. So the rationale being where we're losing some key species of bacteria we know exist in term babies in relatively high levels that are near enough depleted in this preterm population. Can we basically give these as live biotherapeutics, as probiotics, or similar to FMT, but maybe a little bit cleaner, if you like, a little bit more yeah. focused or targeted? Um and some groups have seen or some NICUs have seen reductions in serious disease in those infants. In, in our hands in Newcastle over the last decade, we have seen very little change in our uh, disease risk to, to those individuals. So overall, they're, they're relatively safe, um, but they're also not showing at this point a huge benefit. And I think that goes back to my comment earlier that we are using, well, we've tried three different products over the last decade, but ultimately these strains of interest from these products have being isolated from various sources, not always an infant. And we're given the same probiotic to all babies. Doesn't matter whether you're 23 weeks gestation, 32 weeks gestation, 500 grams, one and a half thousand grams at birth, uh, whether you're vaginal or cesarean, whether you're being breastfed or not. All these factors don't matter for the current administration of probiotics because we just do not have a handle on what the right probiotic would be for the right baby at the right time. Mm. But biology is never straightforward, and there's absolutely no way that just one capsule across all babies across the whole of the UK is going to be as effective across every single one of those infants. If we were to use the analogy of aviation, where we think about um, uh, uh, 
the Wright brothers taking their first flight right through to Concord going to New York in, in three hours. Say that's the, be- the, the, the kind of uh, the beginning and the end of this kind of cycle. Where do you think we are on that journey as far as understanding the microbiome? Um, we're much closer to the Wright brothers than we are to New York. I will say that. Um, wow. The microbiome, we, we have, of course, never understood more about the microbiome. And technology has played a huge role in this. So of the advent of what we call sequences and being able to take a stool sample, extract all the DNA from those bacteria that were in that stool sample or whatever the sample you might be interested in, and really comprehensively uh, sequence it to say, OK, well, this is exactly what bacteria are here. This is their relative proportions. And, and we, OK, good, we, we know who's there. But we still have a really poor sense overall of, of what those bacteria are actually doing in any one individual. And for sure, like we might both have E. coli, we probably do. But if I'm eating uh, a vegan diet and you're eating a McDonald's diet, then those bacteria are going to be consuming very different nutrients uh, and they will be behaving as a result of that very, very differently. So no two things are ever equal unless, of course, all the diet and our exposures and our lives are identical. But that never happens. So even in identical twins, the microbes might be behaving differently because they're going to be consuming. They've got the same genetics, but they're consuming different diets. They work in different workplaces. They have different exposures, etc. So, yeah, I think we've done really well at what people like to say stamp collecting. I don't like that term because I think actually just collecting who's there and, and, and really reporting that information is absolutely the place to start. But then the next wave has to be, okay, so we know all of these bacteria here, but how in any one individual are they behaving? And then how can we actually translate that in a much more kind of precision or personalized way to an in- individual to, to uh, improve their health or predict their response to a drug and so one thing we haven't talked about today yet but i think is really exciting for the microbiome field and in my opinion i have no evidence to back this up but um i'll come back on in five years and see if i was right or not i think (laughs) the microbiome is going to be okay in the case of a single pathogen like clostridium difficile you mentioned earlier fmt is fantastic but most diseases are not single pathogens and so the microbiome and given probiotics is unlikely to at least have a blanket treatment across all diseases like IBD and things like this. Just, sorry, just to, to, just to give con, just to give context that quickly, what Chris is talking about there with C diff and 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 FMT essentially is um, a uh, a pathogen that often people can and you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I'll try and do it quickly. A pathogen that's picked up in hospital, um, uh, lots of stomach pain, uh, can diarrhea. In some cases, can be fatal. It's r- really quite a serious thing. Treated by antibiotics historically, but often if it's not got on the first round, antibiotics become less effective. Um, So that's a a real worry. And essentially FMT, transferring someone's healthy microbiome into a patient who has C. diff. um, uh, I don't know what the numbers are, but but, um, I think actually is more effective than antibiotics, perhaps. Is is that... That's, that's a nice summary, yeah. So it's incredibly more effective than antibiotics when the disease becomes chronic. So when you end up in that cycle of having an antibiotic, typically vancomycin, the, the, the symptoms, the diarrhea might start to resolve. But then as soon as you stop taking the antibiotics, these bacteria can form spores. Uh, so they then sporulate, they come back into the intestine because the antibiotics have basically wiped out all the other bacteria as well. And that infection is able to take hold again. And so you end up in this recurrent cycle. And in order to break that cycle, FMT 
whilst you're providing antibiotics or in the immediate aftermath, actually just restores the diversity and puts a load of bacteria back into that individual's microbiome. And that means that these spores can't as easily take hold. Um, and it doesn't work always first time, but if you give FMT two, three, four times, then you can pretty much get remission rates up to 90% plus. And, and so and it's what an is, incredible treatment. What is so exciting about this? And, you know, some of the things that you're saying today is like, oh, well, these things are such a long way off and adapting into the NHS. But what is so phenomenal is like right now, um, the NHS are using FMT to treat C. diff in, in, in UK hospitals. So anyway so so going on to your point that you're saying yes. like that is that is a single uh pathogen which fmt can be quite effective but you were talking more about look some of these things they can be lots of things interconnected yes and, and, and often the diseases like inflammatory bowel disease are not necessarily microbial mediated they're, they're the human immune system in for whatever way um becoming imbalanced and actually causing harm to that individual and so I think the microbiome, there's been a whole load of work over the last decade on IBD, for instance, and whether the microbiome causes IBD or is associated with, and for sure, like there's changes in the microbiome as in people with IBD compared to healthy controls, potentially in patients prior to like an exacerbation or flare up of their symptoms. So there's some circumstantial evidence to think the microbiome may have a causative role here, but evidence is uh, still uh, a little bit inconsistent from study to study, and certainly the jury is still out. So like a probiotic in that environment, I don't think is going to be incredibly effective yet. But a work that we're leading out of Newcastle, a study we've just set up called IBD Response, it's being led by Dr. Chris Lamb and involves all the, uh, a huge range of centers across the UK, aims to effectively follow patients after they get a biological agent. And so when you have an IBD, you have a range of different biological therapies targeting aspects of the immune system, for instance. We're going to ask not do bacteria cause IBD, but actually, can we use the baseline of an individual's microbiome at the time of giving one of these biological therapies and use that to predict whether they respond or not to that therapy? And there's incredible research in the cancer field to show the microbiome is really predictive of response to immunotherapy. And so we're basically applying that to adults with IBD and asking the question, can we start too much can we start to tailor the therapies these individuals are getting based on what microbes they have at baseline? Or can we maybe give a probiotic alongside some of these biotherapy, uh, um, biological therapies in order to increase the efficacy of that intervention? And I think the microbiome has a much more solid foundation for being used in the NHS on the back of these types of studies than just providing blanket FMTs or probiotics in the hope that they're going to stick and have some improvement in health. So to, ma to make sure that I understand that then, what you're saying is, is that there is evidence now to suggest that, say, hypothetically, if somebody has breast cancer and they're going in for immunotherapy, some kind of uh, cancer treatment, that a specific course of probiotics before they start that therapy could actually determine the efficacy of the treatment that they're getting in essentially improve the chance of them making a recovery exactly responding to that intervention and 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 and, and then the idea of ibd and and ibd being inflammatory bowel disease things like diverticulitis crohn's um the idea would be that actually putting people on specific stains strains of probiotics between 
um, uh, flare-ups could potentially reduce the amount of flare-ups that that individual has. Yeah, and hopefully they manage their disease much more successfully on the back of these biological therapies. There's, like I say, a range of different ones to choose from, and often there's no real way of knowing which one would be best for any one individual. So it's really all about giving the right drug to the right person at the right time and using the microbiome in order to enable that sort of precision medicine approach. So it might not actually be given probiotics, but it might be to just say, let's sequence this individual's microbiome. This can be done literally in a day. And then we use that information to say, okay, based on this information, we think that this individual is going to respond best to X biological agent. And so that's the one we'll start with. It's not to say it's going to work. In fact, of course, it's not going to work like that in every case, but at least it might, first of all, save that individual a whole load of time, hassle, stress, emotion in going through around a biological therapy that has no benefit. And then they have to move on to a new agent. And that can be really, really emotionally draining for these people. And also it saves the NHS and other uh, uh, hospital environments a lot of money. These are not cheap therapies to give. And so if we can try and increase the likelihood they're going to be effective, that will save the NHS a lot of money, hundreds of millions a year. I've got two more things and I don't want to keep you because I know, but there's just two things I would love to discuss with you. The first thing is when we... uh, uh, I'm interested on your take, and I'm sure you have to be very, very kind of uh, sensitive around what you sort of say around these things. Um, but it, it, the more people that I speak to, it becomes more and more apparent that um, the medical system at the moment, there is a, there is a, a, a financial ecosystem around it um, which is uh, uh, built around trademark and IPs around pharmaceutical medication. And, um, uh, and, and of course, there is uh, huge incentives for privatized companies, even if they're selling into a public, uh, uh, into the NHS, for example, um, to uh, profit from from. Uh, uh, having specific pharmaceutical medication. The impression that I get, even just the conversation that we've had the last hour is that, and this might be overly simplistic, but this idea of like, some of the solutions may well come from far more organic um, solutions. Um, How is this going to like how how is this going to be navigated like how does a what happens when a trial comes out that says and i'm being silly here but um uh uh this poop transplant suddenly solves psoriasis and the company that produced the psoriasis steroid like what how is this gonna how is this gonna flesh itself out it feels like this complexity's coming uh, I'm, I'm sure there is, but these are good problems to be faced with if we are able to develop cheaper medicines, more effective medicines, etc. Like that obviously is a good place to be. But it's also likely that you might still need, in your example there, the steroids from the pharmaceutical company. But what we're actually doing is providing an FMT or whatever it might be in combination with these treatments to really maximize the efficacy of that. Um, so it's not likely to replace it. 
but actually just more likely to to make it effective. So it might reduce the amount of time you need the course of of treatment or whatever for, which would be fantastic for a money-saving aspect from a patient quality of life aspect. Um, But the thought, I mean, the microbiome field, as you could probably well imagine, pharmaceutically is worth a lot and is going up in value all the time. The probiotic market is going up in value all the time. So this happens all the time with new technologies, new understanding, the pharmaceutical, large pharmaceutical companies shift direction, new companies come through and startups and can often be acquired by the larger companies. So um, us on the ground, me on the ground, I don't think I'm going to see or feel much of this in, in my day-to-day life, but you're right, like there'll be a shake-up potentially um, at the top of the these pharmaceutical companies because the microbiome is every day being connected with one disease or another and it's probably been forgotten albeit uh, over the last 20 more years because um because we had a really poor understanding on it um compared to what we do now after the technology has developed in the way it has over the last two decades um microbiome will become part and parcel i think of most scientist studies whether they're immunologists or anything else they will be interested in characterizing also the microbes and do you think there's a risk that even these kind of organic strategies i don't know if that's even the right way to sort of term it but um, things like FMT, they could be patented in certain ways and wrapped up in uh, trademarked names and provided. Do you think that that is a possibility? It's a possibility if a company can put a claim to having a huge batch or a single donor, which is clearly more effective than any other donor, and the company does the due diligence to show actually, yeah, like this is somehow some sort of special individual and where like patenting the process and whatever and, and that could be commercialized but i see something like an fmt going much more towards the direction of an individual at their healthiest i mean i feel like i'm far from my healthiest in my mid-30s now so it's too late for me but like maybe back when i was 18 before the alcohol and the burgers really came into play if i banked my uh, own poo sample it does mean that in my future life 50-year-old me who's going and having antibiotics or chemotherapy or whatever can take my 18-year-old healthy poop out of the freezer and give myself my own FMT, or not myself, I would discourage anyone from trying to do a DIY FMT, but this is all stored through the NHS in the same way we store eggs or any other uh, human biofluids. Mm -hmm. We take those poo samples out and we can give ourselves an FMT. I feel like that's unpatentable, like there's no way a company can own my own poo, and it's a relatively cheap intervention in the sense they can just rent you the freezer that you hold it exactly you that's a monthly subscription exactly (laughs) exactly Um, again there's there's no evidence for this at the moment but i see like that could definitely be a direction of travel and would be much more relevant than having an fmt from just some sort of super donor that a company wants to own the rights on and that leads me really nicely into my final sort of thing around, you know, um, we are, uh, as, a, as a planet, we put a huge amount of um, uh, energy into um, uh, uh, preserving human life. This, you know, think about um, how much energy we put in, in the Arctic. There are these uh, vaults where we try to make sure that every plant, seed, species soil bacteria you know we we squirrel them away into these underground containers in in the event of uh, a, a terrible uh, uh, earth uh, shattering moment that we could we could repopulate the 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 kind of of, of planet 
and and I was thinking about this on the on the plane this morning where uh, I thought oh, it would be really interesting to to kind of ask Chris's take on this but as we sort of look forward to um uh interplanetary species more prevalence of disease moving on from exactly what you were saying there you know should we be going out to the amazon collecting stool samples from the remaining tribes that um uh, haven't been influenced by uh, antibiotics and should we be squirreling those away in the same caves where we're keeping the seeds uh, for future generations is you know is that something that we should be thinking about well not only is it something we should be thinking about it's something we're already doing um so not me specifically but a, a huge team of of really impressive microbiome researchers so your previous guest who you mentioned jack gilbert as part of this rob knight uh, maria gloria dominguez bello marty blazer and many others are involved in what they call the sort of microbiome vault and this is taking exactly to your point culturing these bacteria these unique strains which we know are effectively losing from humanity as i said earlier like we are depleting our microbiomes over the course of the last hundred years of industrialization or whatever and we are trying to all these teams are trying to basically bank indefinitely these these bacteria before they're lost forever so much like we're doing with plants and other other things we're doing it also with our microbes and it's happening right now well, I feel like I'm leaving this interview slightly more optimistic than I arrived then. There is, there is, there is hope. And I, I kind of get that impression from you, Chris, is that actually you are cautiously optimistic in, in, in the future. Yeah. 100%. I, of course, have to be very careful about what I say. Um, I don't want to sort of oversell anything here because the microbiome is a field where um there's a lot of hype and and people kind of buy into it like it's very emotive especially i mean my work in babies what gets more emotive than this and yeah and therefore i do just want to make sure like obviously i'm uh, i don't mislead anybody in, in what i'm saying mm. but I, so i'm cautionary with what i say but i i don't want that to misplace the the excitement that i have for this field which is tremendous i mean i think i would rather work on nothing else which is frankly why i work on this and and i'm very lucky that i get the chance every day to discover new things and be the first person in like the history of the world that ever knew that this bacteria was there and that it's doing this thing that we think we might be able to then one day put into a patient and help them with their ibd or to help their baby with with infections or whatever it might be but um we are on the cusp i think of huge breakthroughs in the field and i am um, I'm hoping one of the people to help get some of these treatments over the line. Uh, well, I'm very grateful that there are enthusiastic people like you in the world that, you know, put so much time and energy into this and also take the time to explain to uh, slightly ignorant but curious people like me who may not understand it at a top level, but kind of taking the time to kind of break it down because I think it it is important for people to kind of start getting their head around what is what is happening at the front end of these kind of scientific movements so thank you very much chris it's been great to have you on absolute pleasure thanks for having me massive thanks to chris for joining us on this episode if you want to find out more about the exciting work that he's doing head to neonatalresearch.net and you can also follow him online at cj stewart seven on twitter we'll see you next time